Acts chapter 17. The last few weeks as we've gone through the last couple of chapters in in 16 and 17, we've looked at the second missionary journey that has now begun with Paul, Silas picking up Timothy and Luke along the way, and as we could see on the map up on the screen, they've been called by a vision that Paul received to Macedonia, first in Philippi, then to Thessalonica, then on to Berea, which is where we left last week, Paul leaving Berea, every place he goes, sharing the gospel, people coming to Christ, but also the work of the enemy coming against him, being chased out of every town he goes to. We see, and we talked last time, leaving Berea, going to Athens. He left Timothy and Silas behind to complete and work in in Berea, but then as he got to Athens, getting settled there, he sent word back to them to come and join him in Athens, and that's where we left off last time. So we're in Acts 17. We pick up in verse 16, follow along with me. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying... What does this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Verse 21, now all of the Athenians And the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Again, Paul now, again, we find him in in Athens. And this city, Greek city, capital city, once the center of culture, architecture, philosophy, science, once the center of power in the world after Alexander the Great had conquered the known world at the time. This was the center in all of its glory at that time. Many, many temples to all of these false gods all over the place, the Greek god Zeus and Hermes and all all of these idols, all of these things built up. The city was a beautiful city. Many still travel there to say today to see the ruins of it. Big, like I said, the capital of the of the the known world at that time. Now, in this time, however, when Paul is there, it's just a shadow of its former self. Rome has overthrown the the Greek Empire. It's relatively small compared to what it used to be. But as we can see, and even looking at the discussions here, these Stoics, these Epicurean, the philosophers, there was still great pride that was there, living in the glory days long past. The glory's long over, shadow of its former self, yet so many still hanging on to those days long past. Kind of like Oakland Raider fans. But anyway, (laughs) we see Paul... It's, how far are we into the NFL season? And that's my first jab at the Raiders. That's, that, I'm, I'm pretty proud of myself. Anyway, we see Paul now as he is 
there in Athens. As he is looking out over and he's waiting for his, the rest of his group to join him, notice it says that his spirit is provoked within him. That word provoked means to be stirred up even to the point of anger. Stirred up to the point of agitation, provoked, just like you would understand our word, provoked, what that means. But his spirit is provoked as it looks, notice as it says, a city full of idols. Now I ask you the question, was it the, the stone statue of Zeus that bothered him? Was it the temple to Zeus that bothered him? Was it the, all of these other stone and gold idols that were everywhere? Was that what provoked him? No, it was the worship of those idols. It was the fact that people were being led astray, believing that, that somehow these objects, these, these little G gods could somehow give them everything that they need, could somehow answer the, the problems that they have, could somehow supply for them what they desperately needed in their lives. And that's what provoked Paul to, to this, this agitation in his spirit and notice it says, while he was observing what was going on, he was provoked in his spirit. And I'm challenged by that. And I want to challenge you with that. Because when you look out at the world around us, that though we very few chase after stone objects and temples anymore, they, the world around us is lost chasing after what the world claims to offer. And are you provoked in your spirit the same way Paul was? Or are you provoked in your flesh? When you look out at that and you get agitated and we see the, what's going on and it gives, brings us this sense of disgust as we see it. And we're looking at the individuals. You see, the Bible tells us that there is a battle ongoing in each one of us, even as Christians ongoing, specifically between our spirit and the flesh. And the problem with our flesh when we look out at the world around us, our, our flesh can become desensitized to what we see. We can become in our flesh disgusted by what we see. And, and just like your flesh, if you continue to touch it with a hot, hot iron, you know, it'll burn, it'll, it'll cauterize our skin. We become desensitized to that. And we stop observing as we should. And we start observing in our flesh. And I see here that Paul observing... With the, eyes of the, uh, with the eyes of the Lord as he's looking out, and it causes him to be provoked, stirred up inside of him. As he sees this continuing to go on, he realizes that these people that he sees, they're all lost. They're all searching for answers. They're all looking for satisfaction and fulfillment, but they're looking in all the wrong places. Verse 17 is interesting as it begins out, as he sees this, he's provoked in his spirit. Notice it starts with the word so. He was provoked, but he was provoked to action. He was provoked immediately to action. He did not wait for Silas and Timothy to get there. And he was provoked to ongoing action. Notice what it says. So because of this provocation in his spirit, he was reasoning, same word we looked at last week, conversing with those in the synagogue, with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and notice this, and in the marketplace. It wasn't just in the synagogue on the Sabbath. It was every day in the marketplace. Where's the marketplace? Everywhere else. Wherever he went, whatever it was that he was doing, wherever he was transacting with others, and notice, when did he do it? 
every day. This provocation in his spirit moved him to the point that wherever he went, whatever he was doing, he was conversing with and sharing with those that were needing to hear the truth. And notice this, I love this too. Who was he talking to? Whoever happened to be present. (laughs) Whoever God happened to bring along his way. Whoever God put in front of him. I wonder how many times we walk right by somebody because we're looking for the one with the the golden glow over their head. Where's the one God? Oh, how about this one? The one that just happens to be right here. The one who happens to be my waitress. The one who happens to be the one today checking me out at the grocery store. The one who happens to be in line right in front of me as as we're waiting. God continually moves and brings people into our paths. Tells us that also he was conversing with the intellectuals in the crowd, if you would, the Epicureans, the Stoics, doing a little bit of, of reading on the philosophy. It tells us these philosophers, their particular philosophies that they embraced, the Epicureans, their pursuit was pleasure, happiness, and it eventually got to the point where it became very deviant, very, very ungodly, very immoral, but that's not how it started out. The whole philosophy began pursuing pleasure by simplicity, tranquility. Their whole desire was just to detach themselves from all of the stuff that might cause them problem. They wanted to avoid pain. They wanted to avoid fear at all cost. Their motto might be today, want to get away? (laughs) Just to detach themselves remove themselves from things that might cause problems for them. And they'd sit around and talk about endlessly how they could do that, new ways that we can avoid different things. And that was the philosophy that was there. With that came the belief that the gods were also disengaged. They had perfected this idea of completely detaching themselves from any problems. So gods were, the gods were distant, uncaring, disengaged. Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, their pursuit pursuit was virtue, dignity, being above all of the things that could cause problems or difficulties, never getting too high, never getting too low, maintaining just this straight, stoic look at things. Their their motto might be, never let them see you sweat, (laughs) Just continue to move right along. Almost to the point of just fatalistic. Everything's going to happen anyway, so just, just kind of move right along with it. It says that they always got together. Even anybody who visited the city, that was kind of why you went to Athens. You wanted to go and hang out with the philosophers and let's hear what's new. And that was what they always wanted to talk about, new things. And that worked to Paul's benefit here because this was something new that they hadn't heard. But I I love this about Paul because you know what, guys? He kept it to the simplicity of the gospel. He didn't change the message just because he's dealing with the intellectual. Notice it says, we want to hear about this because this is new because you keep talking about this Jesus guy in the resurrection. Guys, the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus suffered and died, rose again on the third day. 
the simplicity of the gospel. The problem is we in our flesh always want to have the new thing. We want to somehow sound more profound than the last guy. And because of that, so much can be changed and we can get away from the simplicity of the gospel. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, Rejoice in the Lord to say the same thing to you over and over again is no problem for me. And it's a safeguard for you. The simplicity of the gospel. As Christians, we can never hear it enough. We can never hear it enough. It can never get old. Peter will write in 1 Peter chapter 1, I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, as long as I'm drawing breath to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. Peter's saying the same thing. I'll keep telling you the same truth over and over and over again. So that long after I'm gone, it's still playing over and over and over again. A safeguard for us. Well, it's new to them, and so they want to hear more. So they invite Paul to the Areopagus, otherwise known as Mars Hill, there in Athens, to speak to the group of them, to speak to a large group gathered together. And so let's take a look at what he says to them, starting in verse 22. So, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus instead and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are, a very, you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, notice again, that was the problem that Paul had. The objects of your worship. I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are children of God. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Paul engages them and talks about it right away, saying, guys, you are very religious, and religion in its, in its totality is the pursuit of, the, of God, pursuit of something greater than us. The problem with quote-unquote religion is that it can be so dangerous and leading in totally the wrong direction. There's only one road. There's only one true and living God. And the enemy will put up all sorts of other things in this and, and trying to take people in different directions. God has placed the desire in every one of us to know him. The problem is the world and the enemy are saying, over here, over here, and there's only one way. 
And that's how Paul addresses them. It's interesting, I like that, because they had, they had come up with this idea to the unknown God. Even they knew, even they knew that all of the things that they had set up weren't right. Even they knew that there had to be something more. Okay, we worship the sun God, the moon God, the, the wheat God, the milk God, the whatever, all, we'll, we'll put gods everywhere, but there's gotta be something else. So let's make sure we got our bases covered. Let's, let's set up something for the unknown God. And Paul said, that's the one I wanna talk to you about because there is only one. The creator, notice this, he talks about this to them. There isn't a God for all of these other things. There's one and he is Lord because he created it all. He made it all, it's all made by him and for him. He will later write in Colossians chapter one, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the God of everything. He created it all. And notice he says in verse 24, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he created it and he's Lord, he's ruler over it all. He is sovereign over every bit of it. He says, because of that, we can't please him with what we make with our hands. He made everything. He made our hands. And he doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. And imagine this as he's saying that all of the temples on the hills behind him. They're all empty, he's saying. He's, he's way bigger than that. He's way beyond all of that. And then he says, this God desires a relationship with you. A personal relationship with you. This, this, this God, almighty God, desires a personal intimate relationship. Remember, that goes completely contrary to all of their philosophical thinking that gods, the gods are somehow distant, disengaged. I wonder if he referenced Psalm 139 at all, but I'd like to. Would you turn there with me? Because I know in a gathering with this many people, there are probably several of you who question, does God really care about me personally, what I'm going through? Does he really care about the details in my life? I'm here because I believe God, in God, I believe even in Jesus, but does he care enough about me personally, everything that I go through? Psalm 139 Beginning in verse one, David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path, my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me where? In my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts toward me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God is not an impersonal God. He's not a distant, disconnected, disinterested God. He is a God who loves you so deeply, is intimately concerned with every detail of your life. Everything that you go through, every thought that you have, Every word that's on your tongue before you say it, he knows it. How does that make you feel? All of those things that you want to say but you don't, (laughs) he knows that and loves you anyway. Everything, every day, every experience. And when we when we hold this up again, and I, I, I want you to embrace that this morning, if you, if you haven't fully embraced that. I, I, I had you turn there because I want some of you to put a, a marker in there somewhere and reread it and reread it and reread it until you own it because God is speaking to you through his word. But also understand this. The intimacy with which God places his love on each one of us. Look back in our text in Acts as he's explaining this to them. This had to be a total mind blow for them, but I pray it does the same for us here today. Notice, it says in verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. What he's saying right there is God so knew and intimately cared about each one of you that he picked where you would be born and when you would be born. You. I hope that brings you to an absolute place of thanksgiving. Guys, that we are living here now. That God said, I want you to be here now. Notice also it talks there and in reference to that, God picked who your parents are. Now, if you're like me, you say, thank you, God. Because I am blessed with unbelievable parents. But some of you might be, thanks a lot, God. (laughs) 
And I, I don't want to make light of that because I know that there are some of you who have been deeply hurt by your parents. I, I don't want to make light of that. And I'm not going to try to excuse that. I'm not going to try to say anything that other than I don't understand that. Other than I want you to look at what says next in verse 27. He said, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. Everything that has happened in your life has happened for a purpose, that you would seek your creator. That you would come to know him. He's ordained all of that. He's worked all of that through. And you might not like the process, but let me tell you, you will glory in the result if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. When you get to heaven someday, you're not going to say, Jesus, I don't like that. <laughs> it's all going to be, Jesus, thank you. And I want to encourage you to start thanking him today. <laughs> Even for all of the stuff in the past, you say, man, I wish that was different. I want you to start saying, thank you, Lord, it was that way because it was those things that brought me to know you today. He loves you that much that he would send his own son to die in your place to pay the full penalty for your sin as he's sharing all of this with them this great love that the Lord has for them and though it does not tell us here I can I can guarantee you Paul spoke of the fact that we are all sinners that we are all in desperate need of a savior. Jesus is that savior, that he di suffered, died, and rose again. How do I know that? Because they said it. Paul doesn't give us the, Luke doesn't record for us the words Paul used. He records for us the words they used. You're preaching this Jesus in the resurrection. So he shared with them all of that, speaking of the creator of the world and that creator who sent his own son to die for the sin of the world and that, that, that payment for our sin was received in full. How do we know? Because Jesus rose again from the dead. And he says now in verse 30, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because... He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He shares with them the truth that there is a day that is coming that all men will stand before the judgment seat. Everyone will have to give an account. And you will stand before them either, either as, if you reject the free gift of salvation, you're on your own. You're going to have to stand on your own and on your own merit. And if we could stand on our own merit and be righteous before God, Jesus died in vain. But because none of us can stand before a holy and righteous God on our own account, that's why Jesus came. So if you reject it, you're on your own and you will spend eternity facing the wrath of God in hell. That's just the reality of it. But you can receive the free gift. Jesus paid it all for you. You can, you can receive the free gift of salvation today if you never have, and all of your sin debt is wiped away. He can either be your judge or he can be your advocate. Paul writes to Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself 
as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. He gave himself. Our response, as he says here, all men everywhere repent. That means to turn from your sinful way, to turn from going this direction, turning to Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You turn to him. Receive the free gift. Follow him. And we see the response from the crowd, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So here we see the three classic responses to the gospel. Some outright reject it. Others delay it. Say, you know what, I'll, I'll think about this. I'll, I'll come back to it later. And others receive the free gift that's given to them. And here we see at least, at least a handful of people receiving that gift. Now, I want to spend a couple of minutes jumping back to where we, we kind of started. With Paul being provoked as he looked out on this city full of people. Chasing after the idols, chasing after the world, chasing after the lie that has been out since the beginning. Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? You know what? The problem is God just wants to hold out on you. And here's a better option from the beginning. And seeing so many people that are being lured away by the lie, Paul is provoked in his spirit. And I started thinking, you know, what would, what would cause Paul to be provoked in his spirit for all of those people? And bottom line, it's Jesus and Paul. Because when Jesus looked out at the people that were around him, we studied this a while back in Matthew. It tells us in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus was going through all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, notice, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus saw the same group of people, different, different people, but same problem, all chasing after different things, it says Jesus felt compassion for them. That was a, a sense of, of longing and anguish for these people deep to the very depths of his soul felt compassion because they were distressed. They, they, were, they were empty. Inside of them, they were torn up. Dispirited means to literally lay down, giving up all hope. Doesn't matter what's on the outside. On the inside, Jesus saw through all of the, the external, saw to the very heart, and saw them all distressed, dispirited. And notice how he describes them, like sheep without a shepherd. He didn't say like lions without a tamer or like horses without a cowboy. He said sheep without a shepherd. And there's a reason. There's a reason why we're called sheep. And it's not because we're so cute. <laughs> it's a reason, the reason we're called sheep is that because without a shepherd, sheep are absolutely, totally lost. 
There's a reason there's no wild sheep. Because <laughs> they can't exist without a shepherd. They get lost, they get eaten, they get devoured. <laughs> and Jesus sees them and, and sees their desperate situation. Sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus said, because of that, speaking to his disciples, he goes on, Matthew 9, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus, again, observing, as Paul observed, Paul provoked Jesus' compassion, moves both of them. And notice we need to, that this whole idea, it starts with observation, guys. It goes back to what I had talked about at the beginning. Observation. We need to see the world as Jesus sees the world. We need to see the people around us as Jesus sees the people around us. Not as the enemy, but as the harvest field. Not as the enemy, but as sheep without a shepherd. They're lost and they need direction. They need the good shepherd just as much as we need the good shepherd. <laughs> the opportunity, the problem, the solution hasn't changed since Jesus said this. The opportunity. He said, the harvest is plentiful. It's everywhere. You don't have to go hunting and looking, gleaning. You don't have to go. It's everywhere. Just like Paul whoever happened to be present, guys, wherever we go, there's harvest opportunities all around us. The opportunity is the same, but the problem's the same too. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There's way more harvest than there are workers willing to be used in that harvest. And the solution hasn't changed either. Pray. Pray that the Lord would raise up workers to send them out into the harvest. Are you willing to pray for that? To devote that to diligent prayer that God would raise up workers for the harvest that's around us? Guys, that is our only hope as a nation, as the world, is that there is a massive harvest that takes place. That's the only hope. Revival breaks out. Doesn't matter what happens in a couple of weeks on Tuesday, the election day, if a harvest and a, and a uh, revival doesn't take place. So are you willing to commit to pray for that? Well, if you do, let me tell you what's gonna happen because the same thing happened back in Matthew chapter 10. Guess who he's gonna put to work? The ones willing to be diligently praying because that's what he did. He told the disciples to pray and then he sent them out. And you might be saying, well, I can pray, but God can't use me. And you can come up with all types of reasons why. Let me tell you, God can use you in his work of the, the harvest that he desires to be gathered in, no matter how old you are. I don't care how young you are here today. God can use you. I don't care how young you are in your age or in your walk with the Lord. Perhaps, I, maybe you just gave your life to Jesus last weekend. He can use you today for his harvest. The Bible's full of examples of that. 
I don't care how young you are, you might think, well, you know, I'm, I'm only six, I'm only seven. I don't see any of you here that might be there. You're probably too short behind somebody. But <laughs> God can use you in school this week. God can use you in your neighborhood this week. He can use you to plant seeds. Now I'm going to jump to the other side because I see a couple of you. I don't care how old you are. God can use you, and he desires to use you. We looked at this when we were studying back in Matthew. There's very good evidence that the disciples, when they were with Jesus, were teenagers, I don't have time to go into that today, but there's evidence that they were. Peter, maybe in his early 20s, but the rest of them probably teenagers. But you know what? They never retired. Every single one of them took their last breath in full-time ministry. There is no retirement, and God can use you everywhere that you are. All of the young people that you see walking around here that you go, mentor one of them. Start pouring into one of them. Start praying how God might want to use you in their lives. How he wants to use you on the pickleball court or wherever you might find yourself this week with the people who just happen to be there. You might say that I'd love to be used by God, but man, my past, you don't have any idea what I've done. God can use you no matter what your past holds and contains. Moses was a murderer. Paul, the one we're looking at right now, as we've studied his past, his goal before he came to know Jesus was to wipe out Christianity. God can use you no matter what your past is. God can use you no matter how little you think you have to offer. Just give him what you have. One boy one day thought he was just going to go like every other day, took his lunch and was hanging out and he came across this, this, revi- this, this thing going on and he heard this man speak and turned out to be Jesus. And Jesus, when he started figuring out how they were going to feed everybody, he said, I don't know what you can do with this, Lord, but it's my lunch. I, got, I just got five loaves of bread and two fish. Can you do anything with that? Feed everybody and have leftovers? David slinging a stone, taking down a giant. Doesn't matter. You just give God what you have. Watch him go to work. Guys, bottom line, it all, it all has to begin with a burden for the lost around us, a burden for those who are dying and going to hell. I can't say that enough. That's, that's what's happening out there. Again, if we, our flesh can become desensitized to that fact, but the truth of the matter is that if they don't know Jesus, they're dying and going to hell. And we have to have a burden for that. But guys, a burden for them begins with a passion for him. A burden for them begins with a passion for him. A passion for his name. And what does that mean? A desire deep within us to be all about him. To love who he loves. To love how he loves. This isn't a natural thing that takes place, guys. This is a supernatural thing that takes place in the life of a believer. But we have to be willing to let that happen. 
I'm blown away again and challenged by what Paul will write in Romans chapter 9 when he says, For I wish I could myself be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He said, I'm, I, I have a heart for them so much that they would turn from their ways and accept Jesus. If it meant me being separated from Jesus, I'd do it. Where does that heart come from? It doesn't come to anybody naturally. It only comes through the supernatural process that he identifies. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. passion for him, a passion, a desire that will not be quenched until I see the world as Jesus sees it, until I love who he loves and I love how he loves. That should be our prayer, every one of us. Amen? Would you stand with me? First, I'd like to address anybody here who is not a believer who's never taken that step of surrendering their life to Jesus. If that is you, and you know I'm talking to you, I, I don't care if you've been coming to church here for 10 years, you've been going to church your whole life, I, it doesn't matter how religious you've been, you know I'm talking to you, the Holy Spirit's speaking to your heart right now. You have a choice to make. There's three options for you. You can continue to reject it. You've heard the truth again about how Jesus died for you and your need to surrender your life to him. You can reject it. You can put it off. You could say, well, you know what? I'll, I'll think about that some more. The problem with either one of those is you're not guaranteed one more breath. You're not guaranteed another day. You're not guaranteed another opportunity. And if you were to die without taking this step again, you will stand before the judge on your own merit. And it won't be good enough. But you can receive the gift today. You can receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You can invite him into your life right now, right now. So would you bow your heads with me? And if that is you, you just go before God right now in your heart and you say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that everything I've tried to do up to this point in my life has been nothing but religious activity. But Jesus, I want that personal relationship with you that I've never, I've never welcomed. Jesus, I need a savior. And I believe you died for me. I believe you paid the full penalty for my sin. So right now, I invite you to come into my life. You become Lord of my life right now. Wash away my sin. Give me that gift of eternal life and I desire to fall out, follow after you. I'm tired of following the world. I'm tired of chasing after all of these things. God, everything I do from now on, I want to be for you. Lord, we thank you for that work that you've done in all of us as believers here today. But you also lay before us as Christians a very clear decision to make this morning. 
are we going to follow after you with all that we have? Are we going to fully and unconditionally surrender to what you desire to do in us so that we would see the world as you see, so that we would love who you love, we would love how you love, but Lord, we understand that's a supernatural thing that's got to take place. And we need to decide right now if we're going to surrender to that. So Lord, would you have your way in each of our hearts? Lord, we make that decision right now. Have your way.